there's a fishing community down the road. We went and we got a fish. We had some friends over and we prepared a meal. And, uh, you know, we cooked the fish and uh, we put it on the table. We cut it open and right there on the dinner table with all of our friends, plastic just poured out. And that was it for us. That's Miladi Vishen, a 19-year-old woman from Bali. Seven years ago, she and her sister decided they had had enough of plastic pollution where they live. So they started a campaign to ban plastic bags. She was just 12 years old at the time. This year, she found herself grilling chief executives. So what is, what, what is the bigger than us challenge and barrier that keeps companies from changing? That's what, that's what my question is. That's what my frustration is. I just, I don't see why we're not moving faster. Well, you go, girl. Yeah. You yeah, <laughs> <laughs> FYI, that voice at the end jumping in to backslap Melati was former vice president of the United States of America, Al Gore. Not bad for a teenager, right? The very same week, Melati's government, that's the government of Indonesia, by the way, was presenting to the world its plan to be plastic waste, or specifically to reduce it by 70% by 2025. It's tempting to see a connection between the two things. Melati is part of a wave of youth campaigners pouring their passion and energy into this issue in Indonesia, and it has not gone unnoticed. If Melati and her associates have thrown down a gauntlet, it is only fair to say that Indonesian officialdom, both local and national, has picked it up. First, the country saw tentative and limited plastic bag bans. Then, Bali banned single-use plastic across the island. When this ban was challenged in Indonesia's Supreme Court, judges rejected the challenge last year. Now the national government has made a bid for world leadership on plastic waste reduction by setting itself an ambitious target, reduce plastic waste pollution by 70% by 2025. Of course, this is music to the ears of campaigners like Melati and indeed anyone who prefers not to eat plastic with their seafood. But it begs a pretty obvious question. Can it be done? In this episode, I asked James to find an answer with interviews from across Indonesia. Our house is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Ajinkur. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. Global plastic pollution is on everyone's radars now. The horror stories are everywhere. Dead whales with giant balls of plastic in their stomachs, beaches that look like landfill sites, rivers choking to death with bottles and trash. It seems pretty clear that something needs to be done, but few governments have seized the issue with as much urgency as Indonesia. Yeah, Indonesia's got more reason than most countries to take this issue on. After all, it's an archipelago nation with huge fisheries and a booming tourism industry, which is mostly built around its pristine marine environment, biodiversity and beaches. That doesn't go so well alongside its new status as the second biggest plastic polluter in the world after China. That's according to research done by the explorer and academic Jenna Jambak in 2015, which suggests that the country is leaking hundreds of thousands of tonnes of plastic every year into that ocean environment. A recent survey found that 55% of sampled fish from a local market had plastic debris inside them. Which all sounds pretty grim. I spoke to a local activist, Lakota Moira, who grew up on Bali and has seen the changes firsthand. When I, when I was a kid, we used to go swimming every day in the river here in Yukuning in, in Ubud. And it was one of our only entertainments because there wasn't, we didn't have TVs, we didn't have uh, internet then, of course. Um, so all the kids in the village would run down to the river and go swimming. 
Now the rivers are so dirty that if you did go swimming, you would be itchy afterwards. Nobody goes swimming in the rivers anymore unless they, they really have to. So we're talking about a country that's heavily dependent on tourism, blessed with substantial fisheries, but whose natural environment is visibly choking. Arguably a bit of a no-brainer for the government. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it's prompted a bit of a wave of activism from the nation's youth. You've already mentioned Melati Vishen and her sister. Earlier this year, 12-year-old Nina Azara from East Java wrote letters to Scott Morrison, Donald Trump, and Angela Merkel, asking them all to stop dumping their country's waste on Indonesia. Gary Benchigib and his brother Sam were just in their early 20s when they decided, a couple years ago, to canoe down the Saitaram River on Java to document its unbelievable levels of plastic pollution. All these actions might sound like stunts, but as time has gone on, people have had to take these young voices more seriously. Back to Malati. When we engage with adults, I do feel like um, there is, you know, especially at the beginning, I mean, 10 and 12 year olds getting on stage like we want change. The reaction we always got was, oh, how cute, how inspiring, but nothing more. You know, I really took a year or two of real hardcore activism, keep on showing up, uh, coming again and again, making sure that we were handwriting, picking up the phone, uh, calling our politicians. Uh, that they started to take us seriously. Bioplastic Bags is now a global movement led by young people. We have about 50 teams in 29 countries. It's just simply because our generation uh, does not want to wait until we're older to take action. Teza Mafira is another activist and a lawyer from Jakarta who founded a campaign called Plastic Bag Diet, which has succeeded in encouraging some jurisdictions to ban plastic bags. For her, the issue hasn't just been critical to Indonesia's oceans, but also a sort of waypoint in the development of Indonesian democracy. What we're seeing is that the issue of plastic uh, has been picked up first and foremost by this uh, demographic. The older generation, or the boomers, uh, you can call it, have not uh, picked up this issue as, as fast and as ambitiously as the younger demographic. There's a lot to be said about how uh, youth um, are pushing for changes uh, and that they are increasingly being heard uh, in a country like Indonesia, particularly because I'd give a lot of credit to the fact that Indonesia is a young democracy um, and it's a dynamic, it's a thriving democracy. So there's a lot of voices that are uh, able to become outspoken now. Um, in a way that wasn't the case uh, two decades ago. It's, it's really encouraging to see that these voices can actually uh, push for change uh, at, the, at the policy level. These young people might have started with plastic bag bans, but things are moving fast. Earlier this year, the government gave the world a glimpse of its brand new national action plan, which has been in the works for over a year, and is a result of a lot of painstaking work with the World Economic Forum's Global Plastic Action Partnership. Kristen Hughes runs that partnership. So how big of a deal does she think the plan is? Well, I haven't seen a lot of other similar plans, so I wouldn't necessarily want to compare to other countries, but I will say it's incredibly bold. That is actually forum speak for I am really massively excited. And these targets are really ambitious. To recap, the Indonesian government is aiming to cut plastic pollution by 70% by 2025 and to become plastic waste free by 2040. That would be the equivalent of 16 million tons of plastic not released into the sea. Perhaps as importantly, it would serve as an example to the dozens of other countries around the world that are struggling with this issue, which all sounds absolutely amazing. But will it happen? 
Kristen was keen to emphasize that these promises haven't just been pulled out of the hat like the proverbial rabbit. They are grounded in robust work. One of the things that I really like about the way Indonesia is approaching this, having worked with us, is this really sets out a set of very, very concrete targets and strategies that we're looking to advance in five main areas. That's reducing and substituting avoidable plastic use. So what kinds of plastics are necessary and what can we actually get rid of? Then secondly, uh, they're looking to redesign plastic products and packaging for the purpose of reuse or recycling. The third element of this roadmap is understanding and embracing the needs to increase the collection of plastic waste. And what is it going to take? What are the investments needed to actually address that? The fourth part of this of their plan is increasing the recycling capacity. And then the fifth bit is expanding safe waste disposal facilities to process that existing plastic that can't be recycled. So that does all sound pretty concrete, but complicated too. I mean, what I wanted for this story was the amazing innovation, the brand new elegant solution that comes along and just solves the problem. You know, I'm thinking of a clean science breakthrough like the polio vaccine or an engineering feat like modern sewage systems. But the reality is that in this case, that just doesn't exist. There isn't one big solution. And this is becoming something of a theme for this podcast. There's no magic wand anybody can wave here that suddenly means we can just go on with business as usual and the plastic will go away. It doesn't exactly make for a simple, clean story, but there we go. It makes for a thousand stories instead. And there really are thousands of stories. Indonesia is on fire with solutions of all kinds. Youth activists, youth entrepreneurs. There are people upcycling bottles into chairs, tables, and tableware. There are schools voluntarily going plastic-free. There are religious institutions turning waste into art. There are zero packaging delivery services popping up, reusable bottle filling stations for household products. Lakota even mentioned an outfit in her neighborhood on Bali making straws out of bamboo. And one industry that we've seen grow in Ubud is uh, the industry of bamboo straws. They're not just producing them for Bali, but even exporting them all over the world, which is which has mm-hmm. created a new economic stream for farmers and communities that grow bamboo With, and, and people also, that process them. Yeah, and also it's sustainable material because yeah. like uh, that small part of the bamboo has become waste. Yes. But now there's like, a, oh, this is, can be a straw. So, you know, it's very sustainable. Yeah. So that's Lakota's husband chipping in. Geddy Robbie is his name. We'll come back to him. The bottom line is there are hundreds of people coming up with solutions, just as the plan requires. I wanted to talk to some, but where to start? I asked Tiza Mafira what her first priority would be if she were to suddenly find herself in charge of the government, which isn't something she's working towards at the moment, just my hypothetical question. The first policy would be to have a clear uh, transition plan for all producers of plastic packaging to redesign their packaging so that it is not just 100% recyclable, it is recycled. And so that involves a lot of things. It involves, first of all, a radical redesign of every single packaging. There can't be mixed materials in a single product. It has to be single material and it has to be a material that's easy, easy for uh, pickup, uh, easy for taking apart, easy for recycling, easy for cleaning. I think that's going to be a game changer. So, radical packaging redesign. This very quickly led me to David Christian, 
a young man from Jakarta who has started a company that makes plastic substitutes out of seaweed, like, for instance, cups you can eat. Their goal is to solve the issue of disposable plastic by designing it away. These items will biodegrade, not overnight, but in a matter of weeks or months. The idea is to create a product that are unique and different and never been uh, created here before in Indonesia, at least. And then like we can uh, educate the people in a different way. You know, so that's where like the first product is the edible cups because, uh, you know, uh, it can attract people, you know, can attract people. Hey, like you can eat the cups and then uh, people usually uh, actually using it for a party. So instead of using like plastic cups, can they can use like edible cups to make the party more fun. And then after that, we can uh, educate them, especially we want to educate the children because like they're in the future, right? David's business story emerges directly from his personal experiences with pollution and the lack of it. I was studying in Canada for four years before and then uh, but during those four years uh, when I was in Canada I never go back to Indonesia so I already kind of like get used to uh, the living situation there right like in Canada which is like uh, like fresh air and then like clean city right I was in Vancouver so when I come back to Indonesia to Jakarta right I can really feel the difference you know because in Jakarta we have a lot of pollutions and we have a lot of like garbage as well like on the streets i found out that most of the garbage are also like there is like plastics right and then after that i just like started to do like a little research about plastics and i found that uh, i just knew that plastics is uh, not biodegrade so it stay there till like hundred or even thousand of years and then also like i see that you know uh, plastic also becoming a microplastics that here in Indonesia, I think like last time I read the study, 75% of our drinking water is already contaminated by microplastics. So this really like concerns me a lot. So like from there, like I was thinking, okay, like I wanted to create something that are, uh, that can raise awareness. So David, at the tender age of 23, created Evo & Co, or EvoWare, as it was then known. It's a sort of a fusion of youth activism with commercial opportunism, because there seems to be little doubt fortunes are going to be made in the transition from plastic. My thinking was just simple. Uh, I wanted to create it like a jelly, so like a jelly cup, so because it's quite simple to make, right? Just need like moldings. And then uh, using normal jelly, I cannot do it. And then like I just uh, started to learn about like, oh, what's jelly usually made of? And usually it's made of gelatin, right? From animal bones, which is here in Indonesia is kind of like not halal things that I found out that seaweed actually like can be an alternative uh, for that right so I started like to learn about seaweed as well that uh, you know uh, it grows only 45 days here in Indonesia and then it doesn't take up land so not gonna be deforestation and then there is like some components in the seaweed that can be turned into like kind of like the gelling agents that can make it into cups as well. That's actually like the first uh, time like I found out like about seaweed and wanted to use seaweed as the materials. Then after that like I met my friends. Uh, her name is Nori. She's the one that uh, invented like the seaweed packaging. But uh, she's just like doing the research. So I was kind of like help her to bring the products to the market as well. Uh, that's where like we launched the product then uh, in 2017. Yeah, so from there, uh, like we want, uh, like we see that, okay, like seaweed have a lot of potentials to actually uh, be able to replace uh, plastics. We have like a lot of oceans here in Indonesia, right, which is 70% of Indonesia is oceans and a lot more rooms to grow. And then uh, we can actually, yeah, uh, hopefully someday uh, replace plastics.
They're still relatively small, but they've got customers in the US and Europe. And with Indonesia's vast seaweed growing capacity, he's not worried at all about their potential to scale. But they are yet to secure a major investor. And he says the bottom line is usually very simple. Their material is more expensive than plastic. And it's still the case that a lot of customers don't look any further than that. He's hoping that part of the government's plan is going to involve regulation or taxes on plastic to help businesses like his to compete. For the moment, we're quite a long way off from replacing all of Indonesia's plastic with edible seaweed derivatives. The bigger issue, certainly for the short term, is how the country's plastic is disposed of. There's a pretty major issue with waste collection. According to the forum's research, only 39% of waste is collected in Indonesia, equivalent to about 160 million citizens having no access to plastic waste collection at all. The bottom line is that Indonesia's plan is having to require a lot of drudge work better waste collection, and recycling infrastructure. This is something Melati was keen to emphasize. It definitely doesn't sound sexy, but it definitely is necessary. The, the bigger issue on, a, on the long term is waste management. And the reason why plastic was ending up in places that it shouldn't, the beaches, the rivers, the rice fields, was because there was not an island-wide or a country-wide system in place that people understood how to actually sustainably dispose of their waste. So this is where we would see uh, people tossing out their trash, littering, uh, open fire burning, uh, burying. I mean, we, people got really creative with their trash just simply because solutions were not accessible. I do think that it's necessary that uh, the, the plan and the goal and the strategy is to actually um, empower the informal, uh, already existing uh, plastic waste collection systems. Um, you know, this is one of the, uh, there is a large community here in Indonesia of what we call them pemulungs, people that actually um, collect all the waste and then in return uh, receive uh, cash in hand for that. There is a system. That's why you will never see a plastic bottle in the environment because that has value. To find out how this all works in practice, I spoke to someone who truly is familiar with waste collection in Indonesia. Reza Buenard grew up at Bantar Gebang, one of the biggest uncovered landfills in the world. This place actually came up in my interview with David, and this is how he described it. It was so terrible because it was so stinky. So when I went there, so and then like I get off of the car, I was like, uh, like seconds that I opened the door and then I just closed it again and then I was like kind of like puking because it was it just smells like so bad. Like I said, Reza actually grew up here. Yeah, the landfill here in the Bantar Gebang, you can imagine like the like a stadium. It's really big, like a mountain exactly. So my home uh, exactly in the middle of the landfill. At school, my friend, oh, you smelly like cat poop. <laughs> because like my uniform is smelly and I got that label yeah <laughs> and I got that label so people call me oh you princess bantar gebang then I got uh, opportunity uh, I mean like for education so when I went to uni to university at uni my friend will scream when I arrive at uh, at the university and my friend called me oh my god bantar gebang princess is here like a kind of bully but you know, I have a thick skin, so like, oh yes, I'm the princess, you can visit my kingdom. Now she runs an organization called BGBJ, or the Seeds of Bantagabang. Uh, basically, it provides education, food and other help to the next generation of children being brought up at the landfill. 
so to tell them they have a dream as well so they have they have to dare to dream big yeah, that's the reason why uh, i created the i founded the organization it's called the kingdom of bgbg so the kingdom of bantar gebang that's what we call it because i got inspired after i visit london uh, around seven years ago so I visit Buckingham Palace. So I was thinking, oh, I should I should change the name of my organization as the Kingdom of Bantar Gebang. So to make the children in Bantar Gebang like a people who live in the kingdom, like in, in the UK, that's what I was thinking. There are well over a thousand families at this landfill alone, many of whom make a living out of collecting recyclable plastic. But they are intensely vulnerable, not just to the working conditions, but market volatility. The, during this pandemic, not many people take the plastic because price is uh, very low at uh, low at this at this moment not many not many waste picker go to the landfill anymore because for some of them it's just waste their time because they don't earn enough money or the the price is not not good during this pandemic so most of recycling companies are closed in Bandar Gebang at this moment. The government says that 150,000 new jobs are going to be created directly as a result of the Plastic Action Plan, most of them in waste collection and recycling. It's something Reza would like to believe, but even here, old attitudes will have to change. Sometimes uh, people who used to live or to work at the landfill, they don't want to work under in institution. For example, because they, they're free here, like... They say, because I can earn money, I, I can earn more at the landfill than working in the company. Sometimes I can find gold, I can find diamond, I can find euro or dollar, and I can, they say, like, I can make good money at the landfill. At the waste management facility or the company, they, they will have the safe, safe environment to work. But for the waste speaker, they said to me, no, that's boring because we have to uh, obey the the rules and protocol, like the SOP of the company to use the glove and mask and the boots and all this stuff. There's one phrase that pops up in pretty much every conversation I had with people for the episode, and that's behavioural change. In a way, this is what all these different ideas boil down to. One way or another, you're asking people to do something different whether it's use less plastic, dispose of it correctly, whatever it is. Everything I've talked about aims to shift the dial in some way, whether it's as blunt as a government ban or as elegant as a plastic cup made of seaweed. So anti-plastic campaigners must have been thrilled when the country's largest Islamic organisations recently announced that they too were taking up the cause. Religious leaders of these groups are now being encouraged to preach against plastic, and in a 90% Muslim country with hundreds of millions of devotees, this could make a real difference. And then, arguably the other end of the spectrum, there's rock and roll. You can bite and you can feed, you can taste what you Geddy Robbie is a musician, activist, writer and agroecologist. He's married to Lakota, who we already met. They've both been activists on Bali for some time, and Geddy's music is part of that activism. I started my band Navicula since 1996 in Bali. And the concept of the band is like, from the beginning, is to combine 
music and activism related to the social and environmental issues. I believe like every revolution, every generation has their own revolution and then my revolution right now in our era is about reduce plastic and then the biodiversity threat. That's my part. So now I hold this button. Uh, what is Baton. Baton. And then I'm going to pass, pass it for my kids. Geddy's in keeping with the venerable tradition of protest music. He and Lakota are, of course, aware of the mechanics of the plastic ecosystem. But, like those earlier examples, they've perhaps got a broader take on the issue. For them, getting rid of plastic is, at least in part, a question of social change, even revolution. So we've been doing activism together for a long time with many different environmental topics. And usually we have a clear villain in the picture. There's one big company or, or one evil country that's taking advantage of Indonesia's resources. But with plastic pollution, there was just, it, there's no one evil. It's really about, uh, about uh, a new culture. It's about changing <laughs> new, the entire new, lifestyle. New, new civilization. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, like a stone age and now plastic age. like <laughs> is the angle is mostly about uh, the, the kindness, you know. It's like uh, the, 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 this revolution, like uh, the reduce the plastic, single-use, everything is uh, this kind. For me, it's like uh, this kind of revolution. It's like a changing like uh, the whole culture. So this is mostly about like uh, the revolution in kindness. Thing. If you care, then you will be responsible about what you use. When I ask about the achievability of the government's plan, Lakota sounds a note of caution because... She's heard similar goals before. Claims like that are uh, easy, but the action on the ground, we've seen some serious some serious action. Bali's banned single-use plastic. Other cities have followed suit. Um, we There's dozens of cities that are talking about banning single-use plastic, so that's really exciting. And having the government goals of a 70% reduction in marine plastic pollution by 2025 is fantastic. It gives it gives NGO sectors and the, and the cities... Um, ammunition to kind of like push forward single-use plastic bans and really support alternative solutions. Okay, so we're around 30 minutes into this episode now. Time to front up. Can Indonesia's goals be achieved? We spoke to a lot of people for this podcast, and it seems the answer is yes, in theory. In practice, it's going to take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get there. And it's not just going to be solved by one big company or one agency. It's about everyone. But with so much to gain and so many people from all over the country wanting to get involved, the case for optimism is strong. And clearly, plastic pollution is a global problem, not just one for Indonesia to solve. If we want to stop feeding plastic into our own food chain, then in the end, this has to be solved everywhere. So how can you get involved? And don't imagine that just because you happen to live somewhere where plastic waste is not conspicuous, you are not contributing to the problem. Here's Tisa again. One of the crucial things I think that needs to be understood and that not, not uh, everyone understands is that it's not just a developing country issue. There have been countless, countless times where I've heard that, oh, Indonesia should model, you know, so-and-so country, their streets are clean. Look at this example, their streets are clean. We should do that. We should fix our waste management and the government should do this and that. But what they don't realize is that these other countries are actually, they're just cleaning their streets, but they're dumping their waste to us, right? And so we're left kind of wondering uh, what happened to their, you know, their 
fine and dandy waste management system. If it's so successful, why are they exporting waste? But there's so much you can do about it. Of all the issues this podcast will look at, this is probably the one where regular people have most agency. But don't take it from me, take it from Malati, who was asked this very question earlier this year. Well, I think as individuals, we can think about our daily lives and our daily activities and see how we want to eliminate single-use plastics. And you don't have to do all of it all overnight because that can be quite a big, ambitious goal. But you can start with all the small stuff that we see. So plastic bottles, bringing your own reusable bottle, or the next time you go to the grocery store, bring your own alternative bags. Um, And then going out there, pressuring your governments, pressuring companies, and show them that there's a demand from the people because so many times and too often still today we are hearing companies saying people do not want it and governments are saying people are not ready for it. So I think we have a huge responsibility and again, people power. We have to really step into this role and see the potential that we have to decide what ends up on the supermarket shelves. So use that power, use your voice and um, see what changes will come out of it. You might be surprised. Thanks, James. So here you have it, folks. If you've ever wondered how the world's biggest archipelago nation might rid itself of ocean plastic, that's your answer. Please join us next week where we're going to be looking at the role whales play in keeping our oceans healthy and a really cool project that's trying to keep them safe. Until then, have a good week.